Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash boy you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Coasting Bohemia. This story ventures through several eras as we closely look at the life and culture that belonged to each of them. Published in 1914, this book was written by J. Commons Carr. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who took the time to leave a review during the week. Your ongoing support is greatly appreciated and is what helps me bring out more episodes for you. For all the other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, please leave a review and comment in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. If you're a regular listener of the show and would like to say thank you, a great way to support the show is to become a Patreon or sponsor at boytosleep.com. I'm grateful for everybody who continues to sponsor the show with a financial contribution, regardless of how big or small that may be. If you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram 
at Boy to Sleep. You can find me on Facebook by searching Boy to Sleep Podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The American Printer Rise and Progress of Printing Discovery of Printing The credit of inventing the art which perpetuates the history and achievements of all the arts and sciences has been obstinately contested, several cities having advanced rival claims to the honour of the discovery. This, however, should be no matter of surprise when we consider that the inventor of a new art, unprotected by law, would naturally endeavour to conceal its processes for its own use and advantage. After due consideration, we agree with Isaiah Thomas in the opinion that the probabilities point to Laurentius, sometimes called Costa and Custos, as the discoverer of the art of printing. Laurentius lived at Harlem and was a man of property. He seemed to have been engaged in printing books from woodblocks or plates, well known to antiquaries as the block books, in which the reading matter was illustrated by rude pictures. Fragments of works so printed by him are still in existence. Among others, the celebrated Biblia Porprum, executed between 1410 and 1420, has been attributed to him. It was only natural that his thoughts should be led to the production of single types as a means of cheapening and facilitating his work. These were first made of wood and afterward of tin. The date of his invention of separate types is given as about the year 1429. Other dates have been stated ranging from 1422 to 1436. The first of his printed books, it is claimed, was the Speculum Humans Salvationis, of which about ten copies are now known to be in existence. A small primer, in our opinion, shows all the marks of the first attempt of an experimenter in a new art. Costa died in 1439. The necessity for employing workmen to assist in prosecuting the art led to the divulging of the secret. Among these men, it is supposed, was John Geenflisch, or Gutenberg Sr., who in 
who after learning the process returned to Mentz, his native place, and communicated the secret to his nephew, John Gutenberg, an ingenious artist of Strasbourg. It is in evidence that the latter, in connection with two partners, spent a considerable amount of money in some private experiments. These appear to have occupied several years, from 1436 to 1439, when a legal contest arose as to the rights of one of the partners, whose zealous activity had caused his death. Gutenberg continued at Strasbourg until 1444, when, his means being exhausted, he rejoined his uncle at Mentz. Here he renewed his experiments, and, needing money, he procured an introduction to John Fust, a capitalist and money lender who seems to have been struck with the importance of the work, and who advanced a considerable amount, all the tools and presses being pledged as security, in furtherance of the enterprise. Two years were occupied in making the types and necessary machinery when the great work of printing the Bible was begun. There can be little doubt that, during all his years of experiment, Gutenberg has executed smaller books, one of which is surmised to have been a reproduction of the Dutch Speculum of Costa, the Donatus of 1451, the appeal against the Turks of 1454, the letters of indulgence of 1454 and 1455, all appeared before the Bible, which was not published till 1455 or 1456. This great book marked an era in the art. It is painful to be told that at about this time, Fust foreclosed the mortgage, and the entire work with all the materials passed into his possession. It seems, however, that Gutenberg succeeded in re-establishing a press, and continued to practice the art but produced no work at all comparable with the Bible. He died at about 1468. After securing possession of the establishment, Fust engaged the service of Peter Schoffer, who had been apprentice or assistant to Gutenberg, 
and who distinguished for scholarship as well as mechanical skill. His skill and the improvements made by him in the art soon led Fust to take him into partnership, and the Bible, the Psalter, and other important works were produced. Schoffer was further rewarded by the hand of the granddaughter of Fust. From this rapid summary, we may conclude 1. That the merit of the invention of printing, however rude it may have been, belongs to Costa of Harlem. 2. That Gutenberg placed the art on a permanent foundation, and three, that its economical application was ensured by Peter Schoeffer's invention of cast metal types. It was of course impossible to conceal the knowledge of an art so useful to men and within ten years after publication of the great Bible presses, were established in several German cities, in Rome and other parts of Italy, and soon thereafter in France and England. William Caxton acquired a knowledge of the art in Germany, and carried it into practice at Westminster in England. The year 1477 is now accepted as the date of the introduction, the first book printed with a date in England, being the dictas and sayings of the philosophers, imprinted by me, William Caxton, at Westminster, the year of our Lord. He had previously printed without a date the recule of the histories of Troy, which was now followed by the game and play of the chess, finished the last day of March, the year of our Lord God, a thousand four hundred. These were, however, printed in Bruges. So, according to Mr. William Blades, the first indisputable date we have to stand, have to stand on, is the printing of the Dictes in 1477. Though at the time over 60 years old, Caxton was notable for his industrious habit. He was possessed of good sense and sound judgment, steady, persevering, active, zealous and liberal in the devices for that important art which he introduced into England labouring not only as a printer, but as translator and author. 
the productions of his press amount to 64. In the church warden's books of St. Margaret's Parish, Westminster, his death is thus recorded. 1491, item at bearing of William Caxton, for four torches and five, item for the bell at same burying. The Bible was printed in Spanish at Valencia in 1479 by Lambert Polmart, a German but so completely was it afterward suppressed by the Inquisition that only four leaves now remain in the archives of Valencia. The first Hebrew Bible ever printed came from the press of Abraham Colorido of Soncino. In 1488, it was a very remarkable work. Iceland had its printing office in 1530, at which a Bible was printed in 1584. Ancient Peculiarities The pages were either large or small folios, but sometimes quartos and the early books were therefore cumbrous and unhandy. Aldus Minuccio of Venice was the first to introduce the octavo form. The leaves were without running titles, direction words, paginal numbers or divisions into paragraphs. The character itself was a rude old Gothic similar to that now known as Old English or Black, mixed with secretary designed to imitate the handwriting of the times. The words were printed so close to one another that the matter was not easily read. To avoid divisions, the early printers used vowels with a mark of abbreviation over them to denote that one or more letters were omitted in the word. Example, copose for compose, copletio for completion, etc., No punctuation marks were used except the colon and full point, but an oblique stroke was after a while introduced, for which the comma was finally substituted. Logotypes were frequently employed. Orthography was various and arbitrary, Proper names and sentences were often begun with small letters as well as the first words in lines of poetry. Blanks were left for the places of titles, initial letters and other ornaments, to be supplied afterward by illuminators 
whose calling did not long survive the masterly improvements made by the printers in this branch of their art. These ornaments were exquisitely fine and curiously very agitated with the most beautiful colours and even with gold and silver. The margins likewise were frequently charged with a variety of figures of saints, birds, beasts, monsters, flowers, etc., which sometimes had relation to the contents of the page, though frequently none at all. These embellishments were often very costly. The name of the printer, place of his residence, etc., were either omitted or put at the end of the book with some pious message or doxology. The date was also omitted, or involved in some cramped design, or printed either at full length or in numerical letters, and sometimes partly one and partly the other. Thus, 1000 CCC, and LXXIII, but always placed at the end of the book. There was no variety of character, nor intermixture of Roman and Italic, which were later inventions, but the pages were printed in a Gothic letter of the same size throughout. Catch words at the end of the footline, now generally abolished, were used first in Venice by Vindelin Despire. The inventor of signatures is said to have been Antonio Zarotti of Milan in about 1470. Books were often encased in massive coverings, which were ornamented with florid and arabesque designs, jewels and precious metals, the finest stuffs, and the most gorgeous colours were sometimes employed. Scaliger says that his grandmother had a printed psalter, the cover of which was two inches thick. On the inner side was a receptacle containing a small silver crucifix with the name of Berencia Cadronia della Scala behind it. Two or three hundred copies of a work were considered to be a large addition. Printing in America Printing was introduced into America at Mexico by the Viceroy Mendoza in 1536. The first book printed was the Escala Espiritual de San Juan Climico, of which no copy is known to exist, 
but the oldest American book now in existence is the Manual de Adultos dated 1540, of which only the last four leaves are to be found in the library of the Cathedral of Toledo. The name of the earliest printer is a matter of question. Cambridge, Massachusetts is entitled to the distinction of having the first printing press in Northern America, which was under the charge of Stephen Day. For this press, the colony was mainly indebted to Reverend Jesse Glover, a nonconformist minister possessed of a considerable estate who had left England to settle among his friends in Massachusetts. Some gentlemen of Amsterdam also gave towards furnishing of a printing press with letters, 49 pounds and something more. This was about 1638. The first book issued was the Bay Psalm book in 1640. The first book issued in the Middle Colonies was an almanac, printed by William Bradford in 1685 near Philadelphia. Bradford was brought out from England in 1864 by William Penn. As the government of Pennsylvania became very restrictive in regard to the press, Bradford in 1693 removed to New York and was appointed printer to that colony, where he established in 1725 the New York Gazette the first newspaper published there. He died May 23, 1752, after an active and useful life of 89 years. The first newspaper in America was the Boston Newsletter, which was first issued by John Campbell on Monday, April 24, 1704. It was regularly published for nearly 72 years. The second was the Boston Gazette, begun in December 21, 1719. The third was the American Weekly Mercury, issued in Philadelphia by Andrew Bradford on December 22, 1719. James Franklin, an elder brother of Benjamin, established the New England Courant, August 17, 1721. The oldest living paper of the United States is the New Hampshire Gazette, published at Portsmouth, now October 1892, 136 years old. 
The North American and United States Gazette leads the existing daily press of this country in point of antiquity. It is the successor of the Pennsylvania Packet, begun in 1771 and becoming a daily paper in 1784, and is still the chief commercial journal of Philadelphia. The first paper mill in America was established near Germantown, Pennsylvania, in 1690 by William Rittenhouse. Type founding in Europe. For a long period after the discovery of printing, it seems that type founding, printing and binding went under the general term of printing, and that printers cast the types used by them, and printed and bound the works executed in their establishments. Typefounding became a distinct calling early in the 17th century. A decree of the Star Chamber, made July 11, 1637, ordained the following regulations concerning English founders. That there shall be four founders of letters for printing and no more that the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Bishop of London with six other high commissioners shall supply the places of those four as they shall become void, that no master founder shall keep above two apprentices at one time, that all journeymen founders be employed by the masters of the trade, and that idle journeymen be compelled to work. Upon pain of imprisonment and such other punishment as the court shall think fit, that no master founder of letters shall employ any other person in any work belonging to the casting or founding of letters than freemen or apprentices to the trade, save only in pulling off the knots of metal, hanging at the end of the letters when they are first cast, in which work every master founder may employ one boy only, not bound to the trade. By the same decree, the number of master printers in England was limited to 20. Regulations like the above were in force till 1693. The polyglot founders, as they have been called, were succeeded by Joseph Moxon and others, but the English were unable to compete with the superior productions of the Dutch founders until the advent of William Carlson, who, by the beauty and excellence of his type, surpassed the Batavian competitors 
when the importation of foreign type ceased, and his founts were in turn exported to the continent. By an act subsequently passed, no founder was to cast any letter for printing, no joiner to make any press, no smith to forge any iron work for a press, no person to bring from parts beyond the seas any letters founded or cast for printing, nor any person to buy any letters or any other materials belonging unto printing without application to the master and wardens of the company of stationers. Stereotyping Stereotyping is said to have been invented by J. van der May in Holland about 1698. A quarto Bible and some other books were printed by him from plates, which were formed by soldering the bottoms of common type together. William Jed of Edinburgh discovered the present mode in 1725 and stereotyped parts of the Bible and prayer book. He encountered malicious opposition and the business was abandoned, the new method dying with the inventor. About 1745, Benjamin Mecom, a nephew of Dr. Franklin, cast plates for a number of the pages of the New Testament. Dr. Alexander Tillock of Glasgow rediscovered the art in 1781. Stereotyping gradually spread and soon affected a considerable reduction in the cost of books. The arguments that were advanced against its utility have a ridiculous look at the present day, when almost every important work is stereotyped or electrotyped. Matter for stereotyping is set with high spaces and quadrates, the forms must be small, containing about two pages of common octavo. A slug type high is put above the top line, and another below the foot line of each page, to protect the ends of the plates from injury when they are passed through the shaving machine. Beveled slugs in height equal to the shoulder of the type are placed on both sides and between the pages to form the flange by which the plate is to be clasped by the hooks of the printing block. Before the form is sent into the foundry, the type must be carefully compared with the proof to detect any errors which may have been left uncorrected. Care must be taken to lock up the form 
perfectly square and quite tight to prevent the types from being pulled out when the mould is raised from the pages. It must be evenly planned and no ink or dirt or incrustations from the lay be allowed to remain on the surface. The face of the type being clean and dry and the bottoms free from particles of dirt, the form is laid on a clean moulding stone and brushed over with sweet oil which must be laid on as thinly as possible, care being taken that the entire surface of the types is covered. A moulding frame with a screw at each corner, called a flask, and fitting neatly to the form, is next placed around it. The material for moulding is finely ground gypsum, nine parts of which are mixed with about seven parts of water and well stirred up. A small quantity of liquid mixture is poured over the pages and gently pressed into the counter of the types with a small roller for the purpose of expelling confined air, after which the remainder of the gypsum is poured in until the mould is somewhat higher than the upper edge of the flask. In a few minutes the mixture sets and the upper side is smoothed over with a steel straight edge. In about 10 minutes, the mould is gently raised by the means of the screws at the corners of the flask, and after being nicely trimmed at the sides, and nicked on the surface edges to make openings for the metal to run in, it is placed on a shelf in an oven and allowed to remain until the moisture has quite evaporated. And that concludes the readings from tonight's episode. I hope you're feeling drowsy and ready for bed. If you're not, never fear, because you can always listen to another episode. In the meantime... I look forward to bringing you a new episode very soon. Until next time, good night.